Good morning. Today we come to the end of our walk through the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. We're in chapter 12, starting with verse 9. This teacher, whom I believe was the ancient king Solomon, was, was singing the blues over the mistakes and the wasted years of his own life, the false trails and the dead ends that, that he had pursued while trying to find happiness and, and meaning and satisfaction for his life. I mean, he had packed his life full full of power, full of money, full of booze, full of sex. He had followed every impulse, every desire with absolutely no restraint. If he were here today, he would have run with the bulls at Pamplona, climbed Mount Everest, and partied at the Playboy Mansion all in the same weekend. I mean, all the things that are advertised as, as living life to the max, I mean, he did them all. But the teacher finally realized it was false advertising. There was nothing left on his bucket list. And yet the best that the material world had to offer turned out to be, you know, meaningless mist, kind of a vacant vapor, an illusion, a fantasy that left him feeling hollowed out inside like a Halloween pumpkin, just kind of empty. And the French have a great word for what he was feeling, ennui. Ennui, this general feeling of listlessness and, and dissatisfaction and just boredom over his life. He was the great Gatsby of his generation. He was the Don Draper of his day. Solomon had all the toys of power and privilege, and along with them, this, this terrible, lonely ache inside. You see, Solomon carried the scars of tremendous regret over the damage that he had done to himself to his own family, and to his nation. Because he got off track, then in his own sons follow in his footsteps, and they are really out of control. Uh, in one generation, they will dismantle and destroy everything that Solomon worked so hard to build. The nation of Israel will be split by a savage civil war, and it will never recover. So Solomon is singing the blues, because it's not until the last lap of his life that he realizes He's come to his senses, that, that what he's been looking for has, has been there all the time, right under his nose. But he's just been too hard-headed and hard-hearted to really see it. He, he needed God at the center of his life. It's, it's not that complicated. Without God, his life was a chaotic mess. And so last week as he ended the book of Ecclesiastes with one ray of hope that kind of pierced his otherwise gloomy darkness, he said, remember God. Remember God because the only one who can truly satisfy the human heart is the one who made it. In fact, the whole book of Ecclesiastes could be summarized by that great prayer of St. Augustine. That God, you have formed us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Restless, ennui. That's what life is apart from God. Or as the Apostle Paul put it, the great mystery of life is this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's Colossians 1, 27. Christ at the center, like the sun at the center of the solar system. Jesus Christ is the only one who has the, the gravitational force, the essential mass to bring the rest of your life into alignment. Otherwise, things just spin out of control. The last five verses of the book of Ecclesiastes weren't actually written by Solomon but by an unnamed editor who adds his commentary kind of on the life and the wisdom of the teacher. We don't know who actually wrote most of the historical books of the Old Testament. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles. The authors of those books are never mentioned 
in Scripture. These unknown editors were, were guided by the Holy Spirit to bring the stories of God's people together into one sacred volume. So let's hear how this unnamed third party puts Ecclesiastes into perspective. I'll be reading Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. This is God's word. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also taught others what he knew. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. He did his best to find just the right words, and what he wrote were honest and true. The words of the wise are like the sharp sticks that shepherds use to guide their sheep. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one God, the one shepherd of us all. Be warned, my child, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. After this, there is only one thing left to say. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. God is going to judge everything we do, whether good or bad, even the things done in secret. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. You know, Ecclesiastes and Jesus are separated by about a thousand years. Solomon reigned from 970 to 931 BC, and then Jesus was born not quite a millennia later. In a thousand ways, though, Ecclesiastes and Jesus are different. At first glance, if you read Ecclesiastes and then the words of Jesus from one of the Gospels, uh, you might wonder what in the world they have in common. Ecclesiastes seems so dark and depressing, and Jesus is so full of light and hope, and yet they are both in the same Bible. The gospel words of Jesus and the poetic words of Ecclesiastes share the same claim to divine inspiration that is given to the entire Bible. Some parts are not a little bit more inspired than other parts. No, the historic Christian church believes that they are all equally from God. And that's important to remember because sometimes people get confused or treat parts of the Bible, you know, the ones that are difficult to understand or, or harder to digest, as somehow inferior to the easier, lighter, you know, more positive parts of Scripture. But if folks always gravitate towards their favorite passages in the Bible, you know, the ones that have been a source of comfort or a source of inspiration to them, and then either ignore or avoid, avoid the tougher parts of the Bible, well, that just leads to sort of Bible light, which leads to Christian light, which leads to faith light. One of the great challenges we face in the church today is to help people understand the whole of the Bible, of what it teaches, not just a few isolated passages. When people only know little bits of the Bible, it, it leads to all kinds of, of bad interpretations and false teaching. For example, you may have heard it said that you know, really the Old and the New Testaments really talk about you know, two very different gods, that the God of the Old Testament, well, he's you know, harsh and judgmental, just all fire and brimstone. But the God of the New Testament is all about love and puppies, you know. The Old Testament God, he's a meanie who has all these moral laws and he's just waiting for people to step across that line, step out of line, so he can kind of like zap them with a lightning bolt. But the God of the New Testament just wants to give everybody a big hug and tell us we're all okay. And don't worry about all that sin stuff because Jesus has got it covered. You're good to go just, just as you are. You know, the people who say that the Old Testament God is a judgmental and condemning God and that the New Testament God is, is just a God of mercy and unconditional love, they've probably never really studied either one. 
Because even a quick read of the New Testament shows that, that actually the person who talked the very most about heaven and hell and judgment was Jesus Christ himself. He talked about it more frequently than any other person in Scripture. The Old and the New Testament, they tell the same story. The historic Christian church insists on the unity of the Old and the New. And just because the Old Testament has sections that are difficult to understand, well, that just means we've got to work a little bit harder. As growing Christians, we've got to engage our brains in a little bit more serious theology. Not everything that's true can fit on that little slip of paper that you find in a fortune cookie. So please don't be fooled by kind of simplistic thinking. It's, you know, there are things that are not true. Don't be misled by that kind of false teaching. Don't be tempted to selectively quote the Bible in order to get it to say what you want it to say. That's done by folks on both ends of the political spectrum on just about every social issue of our day, selectively kind of using the Bible to advance their particular cause. No, to be maturing followers of Jesus, we have to know the whole of Scripture and see how it all fits together. In Acts 20, verse 27, the Apostle Paul calls this the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel. Not just a couple of verses here and there, not just the parts that we like, not just the easy stuff, but the whole picture is what we need. And so we need to remember that the Bible is many stories that actually tell this one larger story. Many stories that combine to tell God's big story, God's plan of salvation. And so through all the various books of the Bible, through all the various authors and styles of writing, there's actually one unified story running through it all. The story of God's plan to love you back to himself through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So we shouldn't be uneasy about reading the Old Testament alongside the New. They don't stand in contradiction to each other. They tell the same story, the same God. And together they tell the whole story of God's action, God's plan of redemption, God's search to bring you back to himself through Jesus Christ. The New Testament builds on the Old. All the themes and all the truth of the Old, the New Testament builds on it. And of course, we now read the Old Testament through the lens or the filter of the New Testament. It is a great advantage to us to be able to look backwards from this side of the cross and the empty tomb to read and understand the, the whole story of Scripture. Solomon and the other Old Testament writers, they didn't have that advantage. They were looking forward, and for them it was something unseen. It was a little murky. It was really hard for them to understand, you know, how would God's Messiah actually bring salvation and redemption to the world? It was a little murky for them. So as we look backwards, what is most important for us now to remember is Jesus' attitude towards the Old Testament. He should be our authority on the matter. Josh McDowell goes into this topic in many of his books, and I'm sure some of you have read his books. And he writes that the strongest argument in support of the Old Testament actually comes from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. As God in human flesh, Jesus speaks with final authority for the believer. And his testimony regarding the Old Testament is really loud and clear. Jesus believed that the Old Testament was the divinely inspired, the very word of God written. He said in reference to the Old Testament scriptures, uh, the Jewish scriptures of his day in John 10, 35, the scripture cannot be broken. He referred to the scripture as the commandments of God in Matthew 15, 3, as the word of God in Matthew 15, 6. He also indicated 
that the, that the Old Testament was indestructible. It said, heaven and earth will pass away, but not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. That's from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 18. And so when dealing with people of his day, whether it was his own disciples or the religious leaders of the day, Jesus was constantly referencing the Old Testament. Matthew twenty two thirty one. 31, he says, have you not read what God said to you? And then he would quote, a pastor from the Old Testament. In his preaching and his teaching, Jesus quoted from all the different various sections of the Old Testament. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus uh, retold many of the famous stories from the Old Testament and confirmed their validity. Things like the, the destruction of Sodom or the murder of Abel, the calling of Moses, the, the manna in the wilderness and all the miracles associated with that. The list of examples really just goes on and on and on. Jesus saw the Old Testament as being God's word, and his attitude towards it was nothing less than, than total trust. Many people claim, want to accept Jesus, and yet they want to kind of reject large portions of the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. But he quoted from it, and he trusted it totally. So either Jesus knew what he was talking about, or he didn't. And so if you're a believer in Christ, you have to be consistent and you have to believe what he said about the Old Testament and its accounts, knowing that it's God's word as well. Well, there's one more thing about Jesus and Ecclesiastes that I want to point out this morning. And that is how much Jesus' teaching and preaching were influenced by the style of teaching found in the writings of Solomon in Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. We're told in chapter 12 that Solomon pondered and searched out and set in order many Proverbs, that he did his best just to find just the right words, words that he wrote that were honest and true. Solomon weighed his words very carefully. He wasn't you know, into speed writing. Each word was, was thoughtfully chosen. He sifted through the implications of every sentence. He, he debated with them inside. He wrestled, he sweated over all his words like a dog, you know, uh, worrying over a bone, trying to get every bit of gristle from every little crevice. There's no cutesy stuff in Ecclesiastes, no fluff. He was going for just the right words, and that's why his words are so memorable. That's why his phrases are so powerful, a time to be born and a time to die. People remember that. That's why great novelists and writers like Herman Melville and Ernest Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald and Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Thomas Wolfe and Martin Luther, they all counted Ecclesiastes not just to be one of their favorite books of the Bible, but actually for the modern writers particularly, one of their favorite pieces of literature from all time. Powerful, piercing, penetrating words. Bible scholar J.B. Phillips once said, If words are to enter our hearts and bear fruit, they must be the right words shaped cunningly to pass our defenses and explode silently and effectually within our minds. Solomon's words are like that, honest and true, honest to the, point, to the point of causing pain, like to correct our missteps like the sharp sticks used by shepherds to guide their wandering sheep. And his words are true, like a well-driven nail, the image being of a tent stake uh, pounded deep into the ground so that the shepherd's tent doesn't get blown away by the desert wind, meaning that your life will be equally well grounded by listening to and obeying and following the word of God. And all those same things are true of Jesus' words. Jesus' style of teaching and preaching 
is just like Solomon's. Jesus' words are powerful. They are tight. They are well-crafted and, and compact. They, are, they pierce like a laser beam through the fog. And he got that from Solomon. And that's why Jesus' words and images and stories are so memorable. You remember these words from Matthew 7. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain came down, the the streams rose up, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose up, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. That's Matthew 7, 24. Jesus used the same techniques as Solomon, this contrasting of the wise and the foolish person. In many of his parables, he got that from Solomon. And in his teaching, even more, Jesus now personally became the answer to the many questions and doubts that Solomon voiced. Where Solomon would say something like, you know, there is nothing new under the sun. Jesus now responds by saying, behold, I make all things new. Revelation 21.5. When Solomon bemoans how temporary and fleeting and, and, and just vaporish life is, Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away, Matthew 25 or 24, 35. Where Solomon would say that life has been meaningless and empty, Jesus would kind of shout, I have come that you might have life in all its fullness, John 10, 10. You see, Ecclesiastes is part of this movement of Scripture that, that brings us towards God's Messiah, Jesus. Ecclesiastes does not have the last word. God's story wasn't finished when Solomon put down his pen. That story is finished by Jesus. Ecclesiastes is one man's struggle to reconcile his own sins and failures and flawed choices with the goodness of God. And it represents how God in the Old Testament was preparing people for the Messiah. It is the sense of hopelessness in Ecclesiastes that enables people to be ready to hear the good news of God's salvation in Jesus. Ecclesiastes actually more than any other biblical writer, so accurately describes our human situation of being so far from God. If you remember Ecclesiastes' words in chapter 5, verse 2, he said, God is in his heaven and you are on earth. And that's really the problem, that gap between God and humanity. That gap is what creates the emptiness of the human heart. And Solomon is really looking for this go-between, someone who can connect the righteous God of heaven with flawed humanity. He doesn't see it in his own day. And so he's looking ahead. And Solomon kind of gave this unflinching examination of the human situation and really rejected this kind of notion that we can in any way save ourselves, that we can earn our salvation or somehow be good enough for God. We cannot lift ourselves to heaven. And had Solomon been on earth When Jesus walked the roads of Palestine, he would have been the first to throw everything away and follow him. It's not complicated. I want to conclude with just this story. Dr. Karl Barth was one of the
greatest theologians and thinkers of the early 20th century. Just about every seminary student I know is still required to plow through at least two or three of his famous books. And they are long and they're filled with really big words. When he was in the last lap of his life, Barth, this incredibly wise, renowned teacher, went on a worldwide speaking tour where he lectured at prestigious seminaries and universities on several continents all across Europe and the United States, South America. He was hosted in great cathedrals. He rubbed elbows with the greatest minds of his day. It was quite the whirlwind tour. And when he returned to his homeland in Switzerland, he was asked to share what was the one single most profound thought that he had encountered during all his worldwide travels. People couldn't wait to hear what this great insight would be from this wise teacher. And with a faint smile, this elderly theologian, this premier intellectual giant of his day answered, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I think Solomon, Ecclesiastes, the teacher, would agree. It's not complicated. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the wisdom that we've been exploring through Ecclesiastes. He had hard things to say, hard things to hear, and yet to connect that to the words of Jesus, who builds and answers all of Solomon's questions. Lord, we're so grateful for the whole of Scripture because it tells us of your love and your plan to reach out to us. May we know the same simple, wise truth. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so.